0: Look also at ships, although they are so large and are, so, are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body, and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For ev- Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful that we get to study your word with one another. We're grateful that we can be in unity, completely focused on you, and trusting you to teach us by your spirit as we study the word together. We pray that you would accomplish every amazing purpose that you have. We're, we're grateful, Lord, that only you could come in and make application to these verses to us individually, Lord, as you do. So we want to be not just hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. We recognize, Lord, that we deceive ourselves if we just hear and don't obey. So we pray that you would use these verses to make us more like Jesus so that we can be different in this world. Not Not putting attention on ourselves, but putting attention on you. We pray that you would use these verses for your wonderful use in our lives. Set this time aside for your purposes in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We've been looking at practical holiness as we've been studying through this book of James. It's such an amazing book. It's very convicting. As I've said a handful of times, I'm I'm glad I'm not the only one being convicted here, that it's a, it's a group uh, uh, thing that we're going through together, I hope. And uh, it's, it's very, very um, blunt. James, he was never accused of not being clear. <laughs> you know, he got his point across by the Spirit. And we need to have the specificity and the, the focus be as clear as the Holy Spirit inspired him to provide. We need it. Where else are we going to have it in this world? Who else is going to be communicating where God's standard is? The church? So often the churches compromise. So often leaders compromise. We pray for God's grace that that the leaders here and the church among us would never compromise. But this world definitely is lowering the standard every single day related to how we should live. And so I'm thankful that we have the clarity of God's word at any time. To be able to go to and have him give us the, the instruction that we need and to confront us. I've already seen James talk about the word of God be like a mirror. Where we can look at it and it gives us an accurate assessment of our spiritual condition at any given time. Breaks through all the things that we can put up to insulate ourselves from that very conviction. And he shows us in his word how we need to change from one moment to the next. Because I may be obeying God's word in a certain verse one day, but, you know, ten minutes later I may not, or the next day. And so it's beautiful that he describes it as a mirror. Now he's been talking about things related to holiness, practical holiness. He's talked about properly navigating trials. He's talked about how to ask for wisdom in the context of those trials. We've also seen him speak of holiness in the form of obeying God's word, not merely being a hearer of God's word, deceiving ourselves, but actually show our faith. We saw that last week, that we're called to live out our faith. Instead of just having you know, us say things at what we believe and what we're behind and what we're for, but actually let have people come to conclusions about our God and about our faith based on what we do. Last week we saw him articulate that the only way that we can really know that we have a saving faith in the sense of how other people see our lives is for us to have works. Because God knows our heart, and he knows that saving faith will always produce works in our lives. And someone who says, I know God and I love God, but has no works in their lives, that we can't trust anything that they say related to their relationship with God. They're self-deceived. So we saw that, and we saw him last week talk about how we can't show partiality between the rich and the poor. That when people come in among us, they can't ever be treated differently based on where they're at in their lives or their 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 economic status or their race or anything they have to be treated exactly the same by us because God treats everybody exactly the same. So obviously as his children he wants us to represent him well by treating people fairly and appropriately and not show any kind of partiality. Now this week he's going to talk about the tongue and also how to recognize godly wisdom and James has a lot of exposure to the Lord Jesus's words or the lack thereof and also related to his wisdom because before he uh, came to know uh, Jesus as his savior he lived with the Lord Jesus as his half-brother so he got to see all growing up with his other brothers and sisters who had sinful natures Jesus didn't have a sinful nature He had a perfect human nature, but no sin in his nature. So he got to see those siblings try to provoke him to wrath and try to provoke reactions. I remember as a kid, just seeing my siblings as entertainment. Okay, how can I get them to react a certain way? How can I? And of course, that's very carnal, very sinful. And I'm sure that that James and his brothers and sisters were engaged in some of that. But they got to see the Lord Jesus always say the right thing. To not say one thing that he shouldn't say. And to have the kind of wisdom, the godly wisdom that all of us are seeking. So James had a great advantage to the other disciples. He got to see the Lord Jesus live for 30 years before they ever got to know him. And, and so I'm sure that that all is poured into his perspective and what the Spirit used in him writing this amazing book. But now you think of his public ministry because that 's what 's really revealed to us. I mean we have a little bit of when he was younger at you know, one of the feasts and so forth, but for the most part we 're exposed to the Lord Jesus' life and ministry at, when he began his ministry at the age of thirty and think back at what he said think of, think of the conversations that the Lord Jesus had with his disciples. Think back on how what he said to his, uh, to the crowds and, and to the Pharisees and all of that. Think of his words think of what he said. Can you think of one wasted word? Can you think of one unneeded word? That's where I, man, I excel in unneeded words and communicating, over communicating. I'm I'm very, I could probably teach a class on how to do that. But there wasn't one time where he didn't say enough. And there wasn't one time where he said too much. Every single sentence was the perfect length at the perfect time. Was perfection. And that's obviously what the Lord's leading us to get closer to. Ne- we'll never be perfect, but that's the standard. The standard is saying the appropriate thing at the right time, not saying too much, and so forth. And we shouldn't limit God and think because Jesus is God on human flesh that he could never grow me in, in, in getting close to that standard. He can. That's a short sighted view of the pervasiveness of his grace and his power in our lives. Proverbs chapter 10 or Proverbs 10 verse 19 says, "In the multitude of words sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise." Jesus also gave us a warning related to our words. He said in Matthew's Gospel chapter 12 verse 36, he said this, he said, "But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment." Wow. Well, that begs the question, what's an idle word? An idle word is a useless or unprofitable word. It's what we excel at (laughs) a lot of times. Unprofitable or words that are worthless or useless and so forth. The Lord Jesus says, and we need to to have the clarity of this and the sobriety associated with it, that we're going to give an account for every word that comes out of our mouth. We're going to stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account. And he speaks of having to give an account in in verse one, where he says there's a warning for people who want to teach God's word. Notice there he says, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Now, first of all, notice he says the word we there in the verse. James identifies himself as a teacher of God's word. He had a place or a platform. Related to the body of Christ where he taught the word of God. Now we saw when we went through Hebrews that he said some of you should be teachers by now, but you're still babes. And so God has an expectation that there would be a good amount of teachers in the body. But evidently here there were people that wanted to be teachers and and God wants to give them and us a warning related to that. We need to have the, the full picture of what it means to be a teacher. The context here is the Roman Empire, they're in homes, they're scattered. We're told in the very first verse that they're scattered all over the region there. They're the scattered tribes of Israel. They're all over the place in these, in these humble environments. And so there'd be an, a great need for a lot of teachers. And so that's what they desired. But James provides a, a warning and he says one of the ways you can guard your tongue is to not be a teacher if you're not called to be a teacher. <laughs> you, know, you need to be careful. Make sure you're called to do that. If you are called, God has all the associated grace that, that you'll need. But if you're not called to do it, be very careful. And Even if you are called to do it, be careful. I want to have a wooden plaque right here that says, Stricter Judgment, James chapter 3, verse 1. And I'm going to have a, a placard up here to remind me and every teacher that teaches from this pulpit the, the, the stricter judgment that's coming for anybody that teaches God's word there's a stricter judgment for teachers why because God knows that a teacher of God's word has tremendous influence over the people that are listening that person can mislead people very easily people give teachers I believe way too much trust That's why he tells us in his word, and especially in Acts chapter 17, that we're supposed to be Bereans to test what anybody says by the word of God. The Apostle Paul didn't say, hey, what are you doing testing me? I'm the Apostle Paul. You don't test me. But he said, no, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they tested what I said daily. Daily. And it was likely the the Messianic prophecies and so forth, but it's a great model generally for us to to test what people say by the Word of God. Now, this stricter judgment is not the great white throne judgment in Revelation. That's for unbelievers to be at. They'll be judged related to their rejection of the gospel. This is talking about what's called the Bema Seat, that we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that there's this time where every believer is going to stand before Christ. And give an account for our lives, and, and heaven and hell is settled. But one of the things I want to emphasize is that sometimes we hear that, that taught as if it's just merely an award ceremony, and there's no sobriety, there's no mourning, there's no um, you know suffering loss. But that's not what the Holy Spirit writes in First Corinthians chapter three and other places. He said in First Corinthians chapter three, verse fifteen, if anyone's work—that is, what we did for him—if anyone's work is burned he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. That's not a picture of just everybody's happy and celebration and and there's no, you know, having to give an account and having to face him and having to say why we didn't do the things that he called us to do in love, why we weren't led by the Spirit, our motivation for why we did what we did, even though everybody else from without could could give a great assessment of our ministry. He knows the heart. He knows the true motivation. And so it's not just going to be teachers that are at this judgment. It's all of us. But there is this warning to teachers. You're going to receive a stricter judgment because he loves his sheep. He wants them fed. He equated Peter's love for him with how he would feed the sheep and tend his lambs. We're going to be held accountable for it. He says in verse 2, something that brings great comfort to me. He says, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. So he's honest with, with all of our condition, including himself. He says we all stumble in many ways in terms of how we speak. None of us are perfect in that condition. And he says, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. And the idea for the word perfect here is the word mature. A mature man does not stumble, or woman, does not stumble in their words, does not say things that they ought not to say. And he adds to it, if that person, which you'll notice when you look at a person like that, and there's not a whole lot of people, unfortunately, that meet this description, sometimes even in the body of Christ, but if you, if you look at a person like that, their whole lives are in line. And not perfectly, of course, but generally, their lives are in line with God's word because it's very hard to tame the tongue. He's going to get into that. Now, James anticipates an objection at the end of verse 2 because uh, the, the, the mature man who bridles his tongue he also bridles, like I said, his whole body, but he says there in verses 3 and 4 that he provides two examples of small things that are very powerful in turning large and moving large things. He says, Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Horses are powerful animals. A lot of times we, just, we, we communicate uh, meekness by describing a horse with a bit in its mouth, and it has that control. And that's what the word meek means. It means power under control. But next he talks about ships in verse four. He says, look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires." He says here that ships are so large. See that? Those two words so large and are driven by something powerful, fierce winds. They are large. Ships are, and they were large, they're larger today than they were back then, of course, but even back then they were large and they're controlled by something very very small. That's the idea here. Something large getting controlled by something small. That's where these the the horse is large, it gets controlled by something small. The bit and the, sh- and the ship gets controlled by something small, the rudder. Next, he describes small things doing large damage in verse 5. He says, But even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And his whole point is, something very small can do huge damage And we think about the the forest fire that's going on near Yosemite. that has been going on for the last week or two. That started by, most likely, one spark. Maybe a few different lightning strikes. I don't know the cause of it. But a forest fire starts by something very, very small. And I want us to see the point that James is making. Not only is something small infecting something large here, but when it comes to something that's like a forest fire, it starts out, the spark does at least, being something that's controllable, right? I mean, you can control a spark. You have matches or you have a lighter. But once it takes off and it, and, it, and it starts combusting what it's, you know, setting on fire, what's the characteristic of it? It becomes uncontrollable. That's the warning. He's saying the deception is you think you can control your tongue and we can, we can have some success here and there, but don't underestimate the damage that it can cause that's beyond your control once those words leave your mouth. You can't take them back. You ever notice that? When you first married? Oh, man. Newlyweds. Say things, say a few words, and you want to just reach out, grab them, and put them back in. And you cannot do it. For the life of you, you try and you try, and you can't get those words back in. And You can say, oh, I didn't mean them or whatever. But we know with words, once it's out there, the damage is done. If you strike someone in the face, as bad as that would be, that will heal. But the words, sometimes those damage, the damage that words do, far greater than any physical trauma that someone could experience. We underestimate the power of the tongue. We think that we have it under control. And he's going to bring some great clarity. He says there in verse 5 that it's a little member. No bones. You don't break your tongue that'd be helpful if you could break it and put it in a cast and then and have to not speak for a while and and maybe that might be a good lesson for us but it doesn't even have a bone in it and it's so powerful and it's in this kind of cage in our mouth and once it gets let out and gets loose then all kinds of things happen but he says it boasts great things doesn't it sure does the tongue boasts great things Usually the tongue is not engaged in making ourselves look worse or, you know, less in people's eyes. It's usually to boast wonderful things about ourselves. And he says, how great a forest a little fire kindles. He says, I don't know if you caught this, at the end of verse 5, he says, see. Do you see that? See how great a forest a little fire kindles. It's something that they were aware of. Everybody's seen a forest fire, usually. And everybody's experienced the power of the tongue and how, uh, how strong it is and how much damage it can do. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 27 says, An ungodly man digs up evil, and it is on his lips like a burning fire. It's almost like James was thinking of that proverb when he's talking about the damage of the tongue and how it can do so much damage far beyond what anyone else can uh, realize at times then he says in verse 6 and the tongue is a fire a world of iniquity the tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire by hell tongue our tongues are a fire and i love that he says it's a world of iniquity it's just all-consuming It's, the tongue expresses so much iniquity at any given moment, if we allow it to, and does so much damage that before we know it, it's far beyond anything we ever thought um, could have happened through our lives. And he says, it's so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. Would we naturally think that our tongue can defile the rest of our whole body? We wouldn't think that. We'd never come to that conclusion apart from the revelation of God's word. But that's what he says in the verse. He says that it can defile the whole body. Why? Because so often I agree to things verbally before I get into trouble. (laughs) Yeah, I'll take that drink or I'll do that drug or yeah, I'll I'll go along with you to go do this. I mean, that's just one way. There's many ways that it can happen. But our tongue sets a course for our our lives that is very profound. And he says the source of it all at the end of verse 6, he says, that it's set on fire by hell. I can't tell you how much damage I've seen in the body of Christ over two decades of walking with him. How much damage is done by people saying things, and, and real, not, not, in, not in the spirit, but saying those things in the flesh or in walking in their sinful nature, and Satan takes it and he multiplies it for his purposes. And they don't even realize, and I'm sure it's true for all of us at some level at some time, we've all been, you know, uh, taken advantage of by the enemy by saying things in a carnal way. But we have no idea that we were just used by the enemy in that way. There's a lot at stake, what we say. How we say things, how we respond. We've already been told to be slow to speak and quick to listen. He's already gone over that. And people that I know that, that love the Lord, that are mature, the people that I look to as an example for my life, they're, they're not chatty. You know, they really take serious in the multitude of words sin is not lacking because they know themselves just like we know ourselves. We know given them enough time and saying enough things, we're going to say something that hurts somebody. We're going to say something that we wish we could take back. I rarely regret the things that I, that I didn't say. I usually regret a lot of the things that... I did say. But just look, look how the enemy has used words. Think about Hitler and how he would just rev everybody up in those big, huge parades and so forth. And think of Stalin in, 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 in Russia. And think of just all these people in history that have stirred people up with their words, how much damage has been done throughout history. But just think of God's people. I mean, think of Moses getting upset, God told him to speak to the rock. And he struck the rock. God didn't tell him to strike the rock the second time. He told him to speak to it. And he misrepresented God. And he he said, how long will, you know, I bear with you or God will bear with you or whatever. He misrepresented God's heart with his words. I remember um, reading for the first time in the book of Acts where Paul the apostle was struck on the mouth. The high priest told, told those next to him, strike him on the mouth. And he said, may God strike you, you whitewashed wall, to the high priest. And they said, you're speaking to the high priest that way? Oh, I didn't know it was the high priest, you know, I shouldn't do that. But I just thought, you know, this guy is just a guy. He's not Mr. Super Saint who never falls short, never struggles or whatever. That brought encouragement to me because as a new Christian, there was a lot of things related to my mouth that had to change. And that had to happen from the inside out, of course. Think of Peter, the Mount of Transfiguration. And he's saying, you know, we need to build these tabernacles for you and these others, you know. And just and Mark tells us that he didn't know what to say, so he just said whatever came to his mind. I mean, have you ever done that? You don't know what to say, so you just say something. How often do you regret that? Talk about regretting that a lot. That's been a lot of my past, you know. Proverbs eighteen twenty one says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So, so much damage has been done. But also, think about how much good has been done with the tongue. Think about Billy Graham. How many, probably millions of people have come to know Christ over his 60, 70 year ministry. Think about Josh McDowell. I was at the Senior Pastors Conference this last June and he was one of our speakers and he said he spoke, and he wasn't doing it in a boastful way at all. He was making a, a broader point. But he said, I have spoken to more young people than anybody in the history of the world. as he's, for like 40 or 50 years, gone to campus after campus after campus, preaching the gospel and giving evidences for the Christian faith. So we, we can underestimate how powerful our tongue is for good. That little bit of encouragement that we give. So often we think that it doesn't really do much. But we know how much it affects us when someone says that little word to us of encouragement. But so often we think it doesn't really do much when it comes through our lives. But it does. Huge impact on people's lives. So it could either be used for Satan's purposes, or it can be used for God's purposes. Now, James anticipates their response of you know, we can't help what we say in verses 7 and 8. He says, for every kind of beast and bird and a reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. So he says, you know, every beast of this world that's untamed can be tamed. When we tame, it's crazy the things that people tame. I mean, I see these animals, I'm like, that does not belong in a house. That does not belong even in a zoo. It belongs in the wild. Why are you trying to tame this thing? It's just, it's just not natural. But people, you know, take it as a challenge or whatever, you know, to do it. But he says, everything could be tamed, but the tongue cannot be tamed. And what he's doing is he's anticipating their objection. He's saying, hey, I, you, you can't be tamed, you're right. You're saying it can't be tamed. You're right. Man can't tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil. Notice at the end of verse 8, he says it's full of deadly poison. He likens the tongue to a a snake. It's full of venom. It causes damage. You're right. We can't change the tongue in and of ourselves. We can't do that, but God can. That's the point. He doesn't say, hey, no man can tame the tongue, so don't even try. And sometimes we think, well, if I'm thinking in my heart... I might as well just say it with my mouth because it's in my heart. God doesn't say that. He says, you have it in your heart. I mean, God wants to deal with your heart too. But just because it's in your heart doesn't mean that you should say it. There's restraint that he has in mind for us related to what we say. But the key is giving our heart to the Lord because God will guard our hearts and that will affect what comes out of our mouth. Psalm 141 verse 3, David said, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. King David knew it was far beyond his capacity to be able to successfully keep his mouth in check. So he said to the Lord, set a guard. That's military verbiage. That's, that's kind of inaccurate when you talk about setting a guard. They set a guard over Jesus' tomb. He's saying, set a military uh, uh, group of, you know, whatever. How are you going to do it? Set a military guard over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. God can do it. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Just checking to make sure you're awake still. But again, you can't pray for the rapture during a sermon. It's, it's forbidden here. Can't do that. But Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. People say, oh, God knows my heart. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And that's not necessarily a good thing. God knows our heart. And when we have things coming out of our mouths, we don't supremely have a, a tongue problem, per se, or a mouth problem. We have a heart problem. And when God comes in, and he's the only one that can do it, come in and change our hearts, then all of a sudden our mouths change. When I first came to know the Lord, it was amazing how... Not all, but much of the struggle I had with my mouth immediately was gone because he changed my heart. And then he started renewing my mind through his word and, and so forth. I've really tried hard to to allow the Lord to work in my in my life in this way. And I've said it to some of you in private or whatever, but I used to have a really hard time of saying things that tore people down in a joking way. And I would just go with it with people. And we, before you know it, we're just kind of basically insulting each other one after another. And every once in a while it'll come out and it'll surprise me. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, because, because he's done so much in me to get that out as a normal thing that happens. Of course, I'm still growing and I'm still um, being stretched and so forth, just like you are. But when we allow God to change our heart, our tongue will be tame. And it will affect our whole body. The reason why when we look at people who have a good control over their tongue, usually we look at their lives and their lives represent obedience to the Lord, generally speaking. It's because if God can have victory in that area of their heart, which affects their mouth, then it's affecting the whole rest of their body too and the whole rest of their behavior. And that's why he says it affects everything Now, verses 9 through 12, James speaks of the travesty of the dual use of the tongue. He says, With it, that is the tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things ought not to be so. There's the standard. Verse 11. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives? Or a, or a great vine bear figs, thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh water, basically is the idea. And so what he's saying is, you need to see how horrific it is for both good and evil to be coming out of your mouths. He says it's not natural. You don't see it in, in, in uh, nature. And there's a reason why you don't see it in nature. God didn't make nature that way. And God hasn't made you that way, to speak forth blessings to God and things that are godly and so forth, but at the same time speak forth things that are evil and wicked. So let's get into the nitty-gritty. Let's get into the, where the rubber meets the road. Slander. What is slander? Slander is speaking evil against somebody. Now, sometimes we justify it by, by, because it's true. Somehow, we all of a sudden get a license to do it that doesn't make any difference. If we're a part of the solution for that person, whatever they've done and helping them, then maybe that information can come to that person if they're part of the solution. If they're not part of the solution, the person that we're speaking to has no business uh, hearing it and and we have no business sharing it. And if the body of Christ would be self-policing in this way, in a loving, appropriate, gracious way, then all slander would go, go away. Again, they see that out there. They don't need to see that here. No slander. Also, gossip. Gossip is very similar. You're speaking about someone. It's none of your business. It's none of the person's business you're speaking to. And you're either putting them in a bad light or just saying something that they wouldn't appreciate you sharing. And you have to ask yourself, do unto others as, as they would do unto me. Would I want someone to share this? Is this, this personal information? We have to be very careful. Again, if we were self policing by the Spirit appropriately and lovingly, these things wouldn't happen. We don't have a big problem with that, to my knowledge, here at all. And I'm thankful for that. But we can all engage in that. We're told in Scripture that gossip is a tasty morsel. He's honest with how pleasing it is to our flesh. We love to hear that. But we have to be very careful about those things god watches what we say again he's going to hold us in account to every word that we speak or don't speak and of course this covers profanity the standard is being lowered within the church uh, community all the time in terms of what's allowed related to profanity and god says i don't i don't want any profanity coming out of your mouth i don't want anything that's a cuss word or anything that that is a curse word or or any of those things coming out of a child of God's mouth. Only things that build up. That's the standard. That's a hard standard to only say things that build people up. Not even neutral. Of course, not negative and not hurtful, but not even neutral. Things that are edifying or build people up. Ephesians 4 verse 29 says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Peter said in chapter 4, verse 11, in First Peter, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. And again, we have to uh, recognize we're going to be held account- in account for every word that we speak. Now, this is the, the situation that's difficult at times. It's very practical when you think of it like this. When you have people that are wicked... And are doing injustice or they're doing things that are, aren't right in your presence and so forth. It's very, it's very, those are the times where we get tempted to just let things come out. The first thing that comes to our mind and so forth and we're not being slow to speak. We're not considering our words. We're not waiting for the, you know, the right time to say the appropriate thing. We're not asking the Lord for help at that moment. We just blurt things out. You, many times it has, it has to do with con- context where we're around ungodly people. Listen to what David said related to this. David said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me while the wicked are before me, I will restrain my mouth as with a muzzle. So this is how it practically works. You're in someone's presence. They say something. You're provoked inside. Immediately you need to just say, Lord, help me. In your heart, that moment, Lord, help me. I don't want to respond. I don't want to return evil for evil. I don't want to be overcome with evil. I want to overcome evil with good. And so help me right now. Give me patience. Give me the right words to say. Let me only say the things that you would have me say and not one syllable more or less. And he'll be faithful to do it. So we think, well, maybe that's not possible. Of course it's possible. God wouldn't set it, give us the standard if he wasn't going to give us the capacity to do it as we rely upon him for that power and that grace to say the appropriate thing. The, the it, I'm telling you, it's it's so much easier when you just wait before you talk. Just that alone will help us 90% of the time not say something stupid or hurtful or, or evil. Just wait. Just wait before you respond. Just give your mind a moment to just get its bearings and be able to say the appropriate thing. Now, verses 13 through the rest of the chapter, he's going to deal with godly wisdom. And I refer to it as kind of like the the wisdom grid or the grid through which we can recognize godly wisdom. Remember in the early part of chapter 1, he said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. So he's told us to ask for wisdom. This, I believe, the last part of this chapter is helping us recognize what that looks like. So he says in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom so some of you want to be teachers he's saying you want to be teachers then you need to show that you have wisdom by your behavior and do it in meekness and wisdom that's what really matters to God is and he's talked about it already as we've seen faith without works is dead we need to live out our faith by our works he created us in Christ Jesus for good works Ephesians two ten that we that we should walk in those things So he's given us that. And so he says, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. Because wisdom provides a a meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. Godly wisdom provides you the capacity to have the the influence that you have under God's control. So so he says here, this is what it won't look like in verse 14 and 15, 16. He says, but you have bitter envy, and self-seeking in your hearts do not boast and lie against the truth bitter envy that's where someone has something that you don't have and you're bitter about it and you you are upset that you don't have that and so you want to take it upon yourself to get that thing he says self-seeking in your hearts anything in life we shouldn't be covetous over covetousness is the ungodly desire for more, something that God hasn't said I can have, and I desire it and I want it. And he's saying you shouldn't be engaged in that. And we always want to look at what other people have and say, why don't I have that? And God says, no, that's, that's not, godly wisdom is never going to lead you to want to covet other people's things. Godly wisdom is never going to cause you to be self-seeking. Anytime we're engaged in the things of the Lord, we're supposed to be God-seeking and other-centered We're supposed to be seeking him and other people, not have it be about us and have it be man-centered. In a spiritual context, he's talking to people that are Christians here. where We're related to ministry things. He doesn't want us to have envy. He doesn't want us to be self-seeking about certain things. Well, why does so-and-so get to do this? How come they're doing this and I don't get to do that right now? Well, there's many reasons why. For one, it's possible that you're not called to that. Number two, it may not be the right time to do that. There's all kinds of issues. Maybe there's greater needs that you have in your life or that I have in my life that God wants to take care of first so we can be a responsible person in that role of ministry. There's all kinds of reasons why he says no. But when we're envious and we're self-seeking related to things, we try to make things happen. We try to force them. And, and then, then we're mad and upset when, when, when somebody doesn't give us that particular thing that we think that we should have or that area of influence or so forth. And that God says, it's a trap. Don't fall for that. That's not, you think that you're being led by me with wisdom, but you're being self-seeking. You're being engaged in bitter envy. Don't lie and don't boast about what you should have. He says, this wisdom, what wisdom? Wisdom he just described in Verse 14 does not descend from above. So it doesn't come from God. God's never going to give you wisdom that's going to cause you to be envious and is going to cause you to be self-seeking and try to make things happen. He says, but it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. Isn't that what this world's about? This world's about taking care of them first, putting themselves first above others, climbing that corporate ladder to the, to the, to the detriment of other people that you have to step over to get higher up on the corporate ladder. That's how this world works. Who you know. And and getting things by just as you know people say pouring hot oil over your your competitor. You can't do that. And especially related to the things of the Lord. He says that's how the earth functions. It's demonic. That's demons are behind that. And then he says verse 16 for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. You want to see dysfunction? Go to a place where self-seeking and bitter envy are tolerated and allowed to flourish. To where that little environment's a little petri dish for self-seeking and, and selfish ambition. You'll find every bit of confusion and every evil thing that are there. that's there. I mean, it's been in a work environment where that's been the case. It's a horrible place to work. Or a spiritual environment? How many of us have experienced church politics? Where everybody's fighting and jockeying for position and trying to make things happen, and it's a complete disaster. It's a place that's not a healing place, not a place that God makes disciples in. I'm so thankful for the spiritual environments I've been in where there's been zero church politics. Zero. Not that they're above that, but they weren't engaged in that. And, and, and by God's grace, we haven't had any church politics here, and I hope we never do. This isn't a game. This is the kingdom of God. This is what he's doing. We want to stay out of, out of all the earthly ways of getting things done that's, that's out there in this world that, that sometimes creep into the church. Now he tells us what godly wisdom does look like in verses 17 and 18. He says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, Willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So if we're receiving Godly wisdom, remember, these are things that aren't spelled out in Scripture per se. They're, they're specific things. There's specific revelation for me as a believer. And I'm perceiving that he's leading me in a certain way. What that leading is going to look like is going to lead it's going to look like purity. It's going to be peaceful. It's not going to be trying to barge my way in. To force my way? One of the first things we are very sensitive to are people trying to force their way into areas of ministry because God doesn't do things like that. He leads, he guides. It's his timing. It's, his, it's, it's beautiful when it's done the right way. Sometimes people have never seen the right way it's supposed to be done. So all they know is the jockeying for position and making things happen and trying to force things and striving. He says, no, that God's wisdom will never look like that. It'll be gentle he says there willing to yield well that's my ministry that's how i've always done it that's how oh, that's the only way god uses me it's going to be this way or i'm going to take my spiritual gift ball and go home you know when your kids and the neighborhood kid gets mad and he takes his ball and goes home we can do that with our gifts well if i don't get to do it exactly how i want to do it and, and everything i'm going to take my spiritual gift ball and go go home and he says no willing to yield that's how god leads He leads through a life that's willing to yield, just to be a servant, whatever is needed. I don't have to have a certain thing that I do per se. I mean, I'm willing to do whatever is needed, full of mercy and good fruits. And he says, without partiality and without hypocrisy. He's been nailing this home for the last two chapters. God hates hypocrisy. What is it? It's acting. He hates when we wear a mask and look a certain way. And he'll never use that to, to uh, further whatever he has us in the middle of because that's not how he works. He doesn't use hypocrisy. He doesn't use partiality. He uses good fruits and people that are full of mercy. Now he ends with this. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So he says, that's how I use people. I use people that are full of my peace and that sow peace into the kingdom and are about what I want to do and what I'm uh, in the middle of and how I'm functioning. And that's what um, spiritual godly wisdom looks like. So just as we review real quick before we close, the power of the tongue, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is a lie. Words do hurt. They do great damage. He wants our lives to characterize restraint. One of the fruits of the spirit is Self-control. So we don't muster this in our own strength. He said, no one can tame the tongue. We don't have the capacity in our own strength to do this. But God does. So as we rely upon him and say, God, give me self-control right now. In your mind, you're praying this. People don't even know that you're having this conversation with God. I do it all the time. God, give me self-control right now. He gives me self-control in my heart. It affects what comes out of my mouth and everything else related to, to to my life. So We need to be careful about what we say, what we don't say. If it doesn't build somebody up, we shouldn't say it. It's just the standard. And he's always working to get us to continue to be living out that standard. Lastly, the the spiritual wisdom that's from God, it's pure. It doesn't strive. It's not self focused it's focused on him doesn't that wisdom that leading doesn't happen by me trying to make something happen by being self-seeking it happens by his spirit opening doors and having having it ring true with everybody involved acts 15 they didn't know what to do they wanted wisdom what do we do with these gentiles do they have to be circumcised what's going on every single one of those leaders had something to share and then it rang true and there was a common thread through all of it and it translated into it seemed good to us in the holy spirit That should be how God leads and guides among all of our lives. And that's the standard, and he's sticking to it. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Help us to be representing you well with our hearts, with our minds, with our mouths, with our motivation. We pray, Lord, that we would become holier and holier in a practical way. We pray, Lord, that you would cleanse our hearts and help our hearts, Lord, be free of those things on a daily, moment-by-moment basis, Lord, as we call upon you for strength. We don't want to be known by what we say in an ungodly way. We want to be known by what we say that's godly. So help us, Lord. Give us all the capacity and the wisdom how to do that well, how that looks like in each one of our lives individually. And Lord, help us to recognize godly wisdom when you're giving it to us, Lord. Help our lives to be lived in such a way to where other people look at our lives and say, that, that you're supernaturally leading those lives. We want to bring glory to you. We thank you for the privilege that we get to live a different kind of life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.